afternoon and welcome to the 161st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have an election eve COVID calls discussion with Darian Williams, Rich Frankel, and Colleen Haggerty. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also catch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics and Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 2nd, 2020, there are 1,203,978 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 9,247,036 cases in the United States reported up from 8,955,035 reported on Friday. And there are now a total of 231,227 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 228,808 reported on Friday. Setting records day by day now for new cases and the death count at around a thousand a day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now with the extraordinary story that appeared in the Washington Post, October 29th by Nina Satiha. Options dwindle for voters diagnosed with COVID-19 as election day draws near. Hundreds of thousands of Americans will test positive for the novel coronavirus in the days leading up to Election Day, leaving many scrambling for alternatives to in-person voting and injecting another dimension of uncertainty into an election already shadowed by the pandemic. Those voters will need to navigate an unfamiliar and varied landscape to cast their ballots. Some will be required to get doctor's notes or enlist family members to help. Others in isolation will need to have a witness present while they vote. Planned accommodations such as officials hand delivering ballots may prove inadequate or could be strained beyond limits. Sudden illness is an impediment to voting every election year, typically for a small number of Americans. Many provisions to help those voters apply exclusively to people who are hospitalized. But with around 70,000 new cases of the coronavirus being recorded each day, a swath of Americans larger than the population of Wyoming or Vermont will probably contract the disease in the days leading up to November 3rd. Many of these people will already have voted or will not be eligible to vote, but for those intending to vote in person, the options are dwindling. In many states, deadlines for requesting absentee ballots are fast approaching or have already passed, and the limited time remaining poses logistical challenges that multiply as election day nears. In Texas, Anyone needing an emergency absentee ballot must have a signature from a doctor, chiropractor, or a Christian science practitioner affirming that they have a medical emergency. That may not be possible for Vanessa Denjuma, a middle school teacher in San Antonio who had planned to vote in person last week, 
Dan Juma, 31, tested positive for the coronavirus last Monday and has been isolating at home, racked with body aches and a cough. I'm trying to come to terms with the fact that I might not be able to vote, she said by phone last Wednesday. It's frustrating. This was a historic time to vote and get your voice out there. Even after a reporter explained her options, Tanjuma, who says she has voted in every election in which she was eligible, feared she might not be able to clear the hurdles. She does not have a primary care doctor and family members who might have helped retrieve her ballot are all in quarantine. In Georgia, which in the past week has reported more than 9,000 new cases, requests for mail-in ballots must be received by Friday, and that was last Friday. State law requires that in most cases, those ballots be sent to voters via the U.S. Postal Service, a method that becomes less practicable with each passing day. Georgia counties are permitted to make an exception. Ballots may be delivered to hospitalized voters. The Secretary of State's website says those requests should be initiated at least five days before the election, in other words, too late now. Asked what voters should do if they are diagnosed with COVID-19, the disease caused by coronavirus, after the deadline to request mail-in ballots, Chris Harvey, a spokesman for the Secretary of State's office, said they can still vote in person. In Arizona, a battleground state that added 6,000 cases to its official tally in the past week, applications for mail-in ballots were due October 23rd. Those who miss that deadline and have been unexpectedly hospitalized can ask their county's special election board to deliver a ballot to them. Pandemic-related guidance sent to counties by Secretary of State Katie Hobbs recommends that the boards help hospitalized voters and those at a caregiving facility. It's unclear whether counties will extend that service to those who are quarantined or self-isolating at home, or if they do so, whether the volume of requests will be manageable. Our numbers are spiking, said Alex Galata, Arizona State Director of the nonprofit advocacy group All Voting is Local. There's this hard deadline for when you have to request a paper ballot. After that, you have to vote in person. And if you're not capable, the only option is this resource-intensive avenue. Sophia Solis, a spokeswoman for Hobbs, said voters quarantined or isolated at home should contact their county elections department to see if there are special election board opportunities. Most states allow a voter to designate a family member or friend to collect what is often known as an emergency absentee ballot. That representative would need to hand deliver the application to a local elections office, bring the ballot back to the voter, and return with the marked ballot. In Wisconsin, which recorded more than 25,000 new cases in the past week, every envelope containing an absentee ballot must be signed by witness. The Wisconsin Elections Commission website notes that to socially distance, the witness may watch the voter mark their ballot through a window, open door, or other physical barrier. In some cities, local officials and other volunteers are stationing themselves by ballot drop boxes and in city parks, offering to serve as witnesses for those who need them. Under Wisconsin law, witnesses can also serve as an agent for hospitalized voters, retrieving and delivering their ballots in the week leading up to election day. This year, the state's election commission decided that agents can do the same for voters who are under a doctor's order to quarantine at a place other than a hospital. In many states, voters began confronting these challenges on a smaller scale during the primaries, when the number of voters was a fraction of what it will be in the general election. Austin resident Linda Harrison was diagnosed on July 2nd, 12 days before Texas primary runoff. She asked the judge to waive the requirement for a doctor's signature, but was denied. I already had my lab results that said COVID positive, said Harrison, 62, a nurse. Those weren't good enough. 
Harrison located a doctor to sign her application just in time for an intern from the Texas Civil Rights Project to present it to an elections clerk, deliver the ballot to Harrison, and return the marked ballot minutes before 5 p.m. on the day of the runoff. In Florida, this past Saturday, the deadline passed to request a mail-in ballot. Voters who need quarantine, who need to quarantine or isolate after that date can send a friend or family member to apply for a ballot on their behalf. As is the case in many other states, the person can pick up and drop off ballots for a limited number of people and must fill out extra paperwork. In Miami-Dade County, returning such a ballot on election day comes with a special hurdle if the representative is not a family member. Along with the marked ballot and a photo identification, the representative must present a statement signed by a physician on that physician's stationery due to a medical emergency involving the voter or voters dependent. The named voter is unable to vote at the polls and is unable to return a mail-in ballot in person. The county, Miami-Dade County, reported 3,500 new cases in the past week. Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today. I have an all-star panel and let me introduce them to you. You've seen each of them in previous COVID calls and I was thrilled that they accepted my invitation to come on and talk on election eve about um, what's on their mind. So let me introduce them. Rich Frankel is currently Associate Professor of Modern German History and the Sagrera Family Memorial BORSF Endowed Professor in History at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. His research interests center on nationalism, anti-Semitism, immigration, and political culture. His first book was Bismarck's Shadow, The Crisis of German Leadership and the Transformation of the German Right. 1898 to 1945, and his latest book, States of Exclusion, A New Wave of Fascism, uses German history, particularly the period of the Third Reich, to help us better understand the current situation in Trump's America. Frankel is now seeking to understand anti-Semitism from an even broader global perspective. He's currently working on a new book-length project tentatively titled Globalizing Hate, the Impact of Globalization on Modern Anti-Semitism in Germany and the United States, 1880. To 1914. Colleen Haggerty is a freelance journalist telling narrative stories through video, print, and social mediums. Much of her work reflects how global communities are reckoning with our changing climate, social dynamics, technologies, and politics. You can find her bylines across BBC News outputs on Vox, High Country News, US News World Report, Business Insider, and others. And she also has a great weekly newsletter, which I'll ask her to update us about in a few moments. And my third guest is Darian Alexander-Williams. Darian's completing a PhD in urban planning at MIT, where he focuses on disaster recovery, community organizing, black communities, and religious minorities. He's currently working on a few projects, including on Floridian hurricane recovery, natural gas pipeline explosions, and non-state religious organization-led planning. Darian previously worked for the Southeast and Caribbean Disaster Resilience Partnership and the Hurricane Matthew Disaster Recovery and Resilience Initiative. Colleen, Darian, and Richard, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls. Thanks for having us. I thank can't you. I can't imagine how you had time for this today, so I really appreciate you doing this, but maybe it's a little respite from your doom scrolling. I don't know. Hopefully this is a little bit of time when you <laughs> when you're, you can't be on Twitter. Um, let me start the way I usually do, actually, just to find out where you're, um, where you're calling in from and tell us how it's looking there with the, with the pandemic. And just to give an up, 
date before I ask each of you, Darian, we talked on May 12th, and on that day, there were 81,805 deaths. I went back and looked at these. Colleen, we talked on August 28th with Versha Sharma, and on that day, there were 181,265 deaths. And Rich, we talked on September 2nd, and there were 184,974 deaths on that day. Darian, let me start with you. Where are you calling from, and what's it looking like there? Uh, thank you for having me. I'm calling in from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, a few hours ago, our governor here in Massachusetts, Governor Baker, um, did announce uh, a, I mean, it's a little bit ambiguous, but sort of like a recommended curfew again. Um, so staying at your home uh, or being at home by 10 p.m. and uh, the curfew lasts until 5 a.m. I don't think we've had that since early summer, maybe since like late spring. Um, and the situation here is not looking great. Like you know, other parts of the U.S., there's a looming eviction crisis, growing political unrest. Um, we just had an outbreak reported today in a local prison, MCA Norfolk, just outside of Boston. So it's not it's not looking good. Curfew was suggested as of election day. As of as of today, as of like as of yeah, today, so it should you know go into effect tonight. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand that, and from on public health grounds, that seems reasonable. But the the intersection of that with election day is distressing. Mm -hmm. it's, a, yeah. it's a messy situation, absolutely, um, and there's not a lot of clarity about how like enforceability or like what, what is what is required versus sort of suggested. Um, so those details are still coming out. Colleen, same question to you. Yes, so I am coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Um, the last time we spoke, I was actually in Pennsylvania. And I know when I was there, the numbers had been on the rise. And once again, I'm in a place where the numbers are on the rise. Um, so we just saw our highest increase in cases here since August, actually, the other day. So it had been sharply increasing late in the summer, and then we had a bit of a drop, but unfortunately, we are on the rise once again. So how does that manifest itself in, in LA? Do they, are they talking about something similar to what Darian was talking about, curfews and uh, really actually real restrictions, or is it not quite at that level yet? Yes. So we had been one of the earlier cities to kind of reopen things since our initial outbreak maybe wasn't as bad as it was in some other places. So there had been a moment in time where the gyms were open, the restaurants were open. But then when those numbers started going up, a lot of things closed back down and we really haven't had too much of a change since then. So I think one of the, the larger changes we have seen is schools and that schools are reopening in the state. Um, so I know that's a, a big conversation right now is what's happening there. I know the governor of California just said that he's planning on having his uh, children start going through a mix of in-person and virtual schooling. So that's, yeah, and I wouldn't say there's much change within Los Angeles, but throughout the state, there's been a lot of flux and, 
you know, we, of course, with the wildfires that are happening out here, that certainly is impacting the numbers. Um, Los Angeles itself has not been hit by that, but we've had some very difficult air quality days here. We're quite close to Orange County, which had some very big fire outbreaks in recent weeks. So all of that, of course, then just sort of contributing to this, this underlying issue. Colleen, how do we find your newsletter? Yes, um, thank you for asking. I can drop it in some comments later, but my newsletter is called My World's on Fire and it is on Substack. So it's myworldsonfire.substack.com. And yes, every week it is a mix of roundups of disaster news as well as interviews with experts and some original reporting from different impacted areas. Okay, I would definitely want to recommend that to everybody and, and you can send me the link and we'll bring that up for everybody to, to check out. I mean, this has been a, a year in which deciding which disaster is the disaster is impossible. I mean, the confluence of these events leading up to this election has, I've never seen anything like it from a disaster uh, analysis point of view. So thanks for doing the newsletter and um, we'll bring that link up in a second. Rich, let me turn to you. Um, yeah, so I'm in Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, and actually things here, strangely enough, aren't as bad as they are um, in other parts of the country. They, they were for a long time among the top, um, but things have at least sort of steadied and, and um, perhaps declined a little bit enough to where um, the governor, if I'm not mistaken, uh, moved us to phase three with a continuation of the mask uh, mandate, but some other issues were uh, other aspects were loosened. Um, the big thing uh, here, which you know, again, even though things are getting better, um, the Republicans in the um, legislature here spent much of their time in session trying to pass a um, I don't know what you would call it. It's um, it's not a law, but it's some kind of um, piece of legislation that would um, repeal all of the governor's COVID measures taken to protect the public. Mm -hmm. They would all be voided as a result of this. Um, so they spent a lot of time trying to gather votes for a long time. They didn't have quite enough. I think they, they did. And for the first time they tried it, he, he vetoed it. Um, but they are most certainly not stopping. So it's a bizarre kind of situation where, you know, again, it's a Southern state. And so um, Republicans are just as in lockstep with, with Trump um, as anywhere else in the South. Um, but fortunately, we, we do have a Democratic governor who has been fighting, uh, I can't even imagine uh, how hard, to maintain some level of, of sanity. Um, I mean, I've noticed in public when I go shopping now that, you know, the masks are, are far more. I mean, it's overwhelming now, whereas previously it had been, you know, um, half, you know, it was really noticeable that people weren't wearing them. And so when I go to the store, it's now it's the opposite. You, you really notice if someone's not wearing one. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's strangely enough, you know, um, yeah, it's sort of receded again. It's not great by any means, but, um, but yeah, it's not one of the, the hot spots at the moment. It's a, an interesting example of it. John Bell Edwards, right? Is that the, yeah. your governor there? Yeah. So where you have a Democratic governor with an overwhelming Republican legislature mm -hmm. and they yeah. managed to somehow keep the peace up until now? Why, why now? What's the tipping point now? 
Um, well, I mean, they've been, they you mean in terms of how the Republicans have been able to finally get that measure? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it did take them a while and they, they have been pushing back on all kinds of, mm. um, all kinds of ways. Um, but they, for a long time, never could build it up. I guess there was just sort of a, I'm not, I'm not, I don't try to get too deeply into the ins and outs, especially of Republican politics in this state, but, um, they finally, I guess, maybe twisted a couple of extra arms to get it to get it to that point, um, but yeah, it's it's yeah. Thank God there's a, a Democratic governor. That's that's all I can say. Well, let's talk about some of the specific issues of this election. And Colleen, I'm going to start with you, and everybody can jump in on on these issues however they wish to. Um, I want to ask you a bit about some of the turnout figures that we've seen, uh, and there's. Uh, a lot of great reporting on about this, and it's something you've been uh, following as well. The Texas Observer has a piece up today by Amal Ahmed uh, talking about the pretty extraordinary turnout figures. I think they've surpassed over the weekend um, in early voting what was the entire turnout for 2016 in Texas. And it seems like um, Gen Z is leading the way there. What's your take on that? Yes. So I know Texas and Hawaii as well, I believe, as of when we jumped on this call, are the two states that have seen higher turnout now than they did in the actual election in 2016. So that's pretty extraordinary, all things considered. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, I have reported on young voters since 2016, and the years always the common refrain that young people don't go out and vote. And there is plenty of statistics to back that up as well, not denying that at all. But we have seen a marked shift in that. And I think 2018 was one very clear example that things were changing. We saw the number of millennials who went out and voted doubled almost from 2016 to 2018, that being a midterm election year. So a year that you don't expect to see a market increase in voter turnout to begin with. And then this year so far, we've seen more than 7 million young people go out and vote. So it's, it's pretty extraordinary to see those numbers. And even not looking at the presidential election. I mean, if you look at some of the special elections that have been held, if you look up in Massachusetts at the um, Marquis Kennedy race, there's a lot of young people who are getting really fired up about maybe these sort of smaller races. And a lot of that traces back to climate change and voters who are caring a lot about some of these issues that, you know, during 2016, that was barely mentioned in the debates. Now it was a featured topic, not saying it necessarily got much of a conversation going in those debates, but it's there. And we know that it's a top concern for all voters, but certainly that is something that young people have helped really push to the forefront of the conversation. So I think that's really going to be an interesting number to watch as we get a fuller scope of these returns is how many young people are coming out and, you know, in what way they're doing it. Are people doing mail-in? Are they going to the polls? We know young people are volunteering at the polls since that's been a huge push since maybe they're less vulnerable in some ways to COVID-19. So I think in a very hectic and difficult week, that is something that we can all look at and be excited about that young people are really taking advantage of 
this opportunity to vote early and to get their voices heard loudly. My entire life, I have heard, even when I was one of those voters, um, younger voters, we've heard that that wave of youth voters is going to carry. And usually it's, it's, it's thought that it's going to be deciding for Democratic candidates. And so it seems to be happening, or at least in some states, it seems to be happening right now. Can you, um, I mean, analyze that a little bit for us? Is this organizing that has finally matured in some ways? Is it about social media activation or is it a Trump effect? What's what's going on here? I mean, I think everything you touched on there is probably a contributing factor. You know, as you said, it's when we're looking at what states people are turning out in, it's not just, you know, the very liberal states. Some of the highest youth voter turnout we've seen so far has been Texas, Florida, North Carolina. So the states that people are really going to be looking to in the next day to get a feel for who's ahead. So I I think that's pretty incredible as it is. I mean, it's in a year like this where so much has happened, I think it's very difficult to say that was the thing, that was the motivator for people. But I, I do think one thing I've noticed this election compared to the last one is I remember speaking to a lot of young people in 2016 who felt very disenfranchised because they hadn't maybe been aware of some provision in their state or they were trying to vote in the state where they go to school and that had a very different landscape than where they grew up. So they didn't know the dates they had to hit or you know the envelope they had to put their mail-in ballot in or something along those lines. And it was really frustrating for people who felt like there wasn't a place to look to easily understand the voting process. And I do think right now, I mean, if you go on social media, it's like you're being hit over the head with it to a degree where people are really trying to get those resources to be more accessible to people. So I, I do think that has contributed to it in that, you know, it's not just, I think celebrities pushing to get out the vote is a bit of a trope at this point, but I think people are not just saying go out and vote, but they're acknowledging the barriers that are in place and that those Mm -hmm. barriers are different depending on where you are and who you are. So I think that has been massively helpful for actually not just maybe encouraging people to vote or trying to shame them by not voting, but empowering them with the actual tools that they need to then cast that ballot and in a way that it will be counted. That's interesting. Darian, can I bring you in on, on that? Because I know you, you've you been thinking about this too in terms of who's voting and who's not voting right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think uh, since 2016, and especially since the onset of the pandemic, um, at least when we think about uh, youth voters and youth political organizing, I think there's there have been a lot of sort of connections made across groups, a lot of sort of solidarity politics emerging in new and like local ways that I think are um, leading some people to the polls. I know 
the, and I feel like I talked about it when I was first on COVID calls, our, um, our mutual aid organization that we started here in Boston at the start of the pandemic um, to help people pay their utility bills and replace some part of their paycheck uh, also had an explicit sort of political education angle to it as well. Um, and it was mostly led by Gen Z college kids who, um, I mean, were, are, are communists and maybe not even necessarily interested in electoral politics, but interested in pulling people into um, collective political awareness and anticipation of the eviction crisis, and anticipation of um, the crisis in our prisons and, um, and some of these local fights, I think Colleen um, touched on. Um, and I think that did translate to people kind of even being interested in more conventional forms of electoral politics and voting. Um, I voted. Um, and uh, at the same time, I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about um, people in jail and people in prisons. I, mean, I think we need, we need to make a distinction when we talk about voting. Um, so people, people in jail, in like county jail or local jail, unambiguously have the legal right to vote um, in the United States presently. And there's like 600,000 people in jail, maybe 400, I think the last number I looked at was like 470,000 of them um, are eligible to be registered to vote and to vote somewhere. Um, and COVID has complicated that. And uh, the combination of alleged measures to protect prisoners from, from COVID-19 uh, has prevented them from having access to materials to let them register or access to materials to actually vote in their elections. Um, and then alongside that, there's folks in prison, um, like 1.5 million in the United States. And there are some states that allow uh, folks in prison to vote. Um, Maine, New Hampshire, uh, a couple other places, a little bit kind of ambiguous. Um, and people with uh, a felony record, um, and most notably in Florida, um, technically have the legal right to vote in this election. Um, Florida, um, enfranchise those people with the passage of Amendment 4, which went into effect at the start of 2019. Uh, and that was a cause for celebration. Um, and folks thought that would have a really huge impact. And that effort was quickly sabotaged um, by re Republicans in Florida who passed uh, Senate Bill 7066 um, in July of that same year, which sort of placed the restriction of like, you can vote, but you have to pay all of your fees and fines in order to sort of gain that right. Um, and for folks who don't know, you can rack up quite a bit of debt in prison. Um, you can get into debt for being in prison. Um, so folks uh, who are incarcerated for maybe just like two, three years could come out with like over $50,000 in debt to the state um, as a result of that. And if you have a felony on your record, are barred from any employment with like a, any kind of living wage. You, you owe $50,000 to the state. You, you technically have the right to vote if you pay that off. Clearly that's not going to happen. And clearly that was part of sort of a larger effort to keep these people from participating in the electoral process. 
And so we saw in Florida, um, I think, I think the number is like th around 30,000 people um, were able to register after that law. Originally, it was thought that maybe like up to 400,000 people could be registered to vote and could participate in elections. Um, right now, it looks like about 80 or 30,000 of them can actually do that. And it remains to be seen who actually is participating. Um, and so it's a hot mess and it looks very different from, from locality to locality and state to state. There's so much in that, what you just said. And one of the interesting parts to me, it ties back to what Colleen was talking about is that maybe, and maybe we can tie this back to, to George Floyd's murder uh, and the defund the police uh, movement, Black Lives Matter movement, that many of these things are now converging in a space of voter education that had somehow been separated. I, I don't know, but I mean, these issues you're talking about, Darian, um, I've seen them in social media channels alongside other issues, and they seem to be sort of coalescing around a sort of voter education for younger voters, maybe not only younger voters. Interesting, I just share with you a I've had a number of very interesting conversations with my father this year. And uh, we we stopped talking about politics for a long time. We started talking about politics again and uh, and had a kind of open channel. And he said, uh, I could tell there was something he wanted to talk about, but he was a little, he's like, tell me why Michael Bloomberg is spending all this money in Florida for, for convicts to vote. And, and this, the way he framed the question, I knew that it had, it was a Facebook, it had come through one of his more conservative friends on Facebook. And we had a good conversation about it and I didn't do as good a job as you did explaining. But this issue, a sort of fundamental issue about fairness in terms of restoring voting rights was something actually once he and I talked about it and, and he's a lifelong Republican voter in Texas, he said, that's not fair. So if you can just, it just feels like with some of these issues, even with people who might not seem like they'd be voters who'd line up behind those kinds of issues, if you can take the time to cut through the, you know, Facebook and Fox noise, you 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 can get somewhere with those issues. I don't know. Maybe I'm being election eve too optimistic. Darian, I don't know if you want to react to that, but. No, I mean, uh, I guess like I alluded to earlier, there's. Uh, there's a lot of coalition building in ways that we haven't seen um, with particular groups in a really long time. Um, it has happened before, but not for a little while. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, even, you know, talking about the fact that you can be indebted to the state for being locked in a cage for years, being like just a reality that like, you know, just sharing that fact with a lot of people changes their perspective about um, the type of system that we all participate in, which is, you know, American settler, colonial and carceral state, um, or there's people in cages all across the country who have certain rights on paper. And then plenty of folks who sort of disrupt, disrupt uh, their ability to participate in society and then points a finger at them when they are, you know, fail, quote unquote, fail. And so, um, so I'm glad that you had that conversation with your father. And I, and I, I'm glad a lot of us are having those kinds of conversations with 
with our loved ones. Rich, let me bring you in. Um, in the last few days, well, we had a, uh, a situation in West Philadelphia where um, you may have seen, I don't know everybody's seen Walter Wallace Jr. was killed by the Philadelphia police a week ago and very tense in Philadelphia with a curfew for two nights. Over the weekend, Alamance County, North Carolina, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, um, you know, peaceful march to the polls and pepper spray used by police. I mean, I'm seeing images now of downtowns being boarded up as if there was a hurricane coming. So, I mean, these kinds of issues, when I think of these issues, I think about the previous conversation we had and the real possibility of violence. It's It's been ongoing throughout this whole year. It wouldn't be new, but election day violence. Can you, first of all, like, what are you worried? Um, what are you worried about? And what's the sort of historical context that you draw from to think about it? Yeah, I'm worried, uh, certainly worried. As you pointed out, I mean, this is something that's been going on um, all year in a number of different ways. I mean, you can think about it first in terms of, um, you know, the George Floyd protests that were then, um, used by the Trump administration to uh, provide a, um, an excuse to send in these various kinds of um, unmarked um, uh, law enforcement groups, and we don't even know exactly who they were, um, to then build up more violence, to, to antagonize and so forth, um, and hoping to try to create this narrative that, you know, the cities are burning and so forth. And it's um, somehow it's the left, even though, again, he's in power, but somehow trying to blame those who aren't in power for this um, and calling for a kind of strong man response, you know, and um, not playing, you know, nice with them and so forth. Um, you know, and that to me has something of an historical parallel to Germany where um, Nazis would deliberately provoke fights in communist neighborhoods. They would deliberately march into communist neighborhoods, knowing that they would get a response, having a fight, uh, and then knowing that largely the police would tend to side with them. Um, and so when it was all over, um, it would be communists for the most part who would, who would get arrested. And and Hitler, who was not in power yet, would claim, you know, the state is failing because it's breakdown of law and order. Um, and I'm the only one who can who can restore it. Um, and so, again, using his own violence, his own provocations as a justification for why he should be in power, because he could then stop it. Um, but and that was bad enough. I don't think it, it had the effect that Trump wanted. I think it failed to a large degree. Um, people could see that their cities weren't really burning down around them. Um, but what's you know, what's been happening lately is um, you know another form of this kind of violence um, in which you have efforts at um, you know, clear efforts at intimidation. Um, the uh, just the other day, the um, the Biden bus that was uh, heading to Austin, I believe it was in, in Texas. I know that um, with a a massive caravan of Trump supporters in their trucks and so forth, uh, essentially trying to force them off the road, um, at the very least, certainly making a statement about what they could do to them if they wanted to. Um, and then 
you know, Trump praising them and saying, you know, they, they did nothing wrong. Um, and, and those are the kinds of things that are, are really um, dangerous now, of course, when, when the president um, gives his approval of it, right? And in fact, absolves them of any guilt. Um, this, this period right now kind of reminds me of the period after Hitler was appointed chancellor at the end of January 1933 and just prior to the last quasi-free elections in Germany that were in, in uh, the beginning of March of 1933. Um, as chancellor, Hitler had now the ability to use the police. Um, one of his men, Hermann Goering, was in charge of the police in Prussia. And so they could use them to um, not only intimidate, but also, of course, again, to not do anything to, to um, SA and stormtroopers and so forth um, who went out to attack. Um, and they did go out and, um, and, and attack communists in the streets, um, beat them, took them to... Um, these kind of wild concentration camps um, in the basements of Nazi headquarters and pubs and so forth and, and beat them and tortured them, uh, in many cases killed them. Um, and this was also right after something that, that Trump fortunately, at least not yet, has had, which was the Reichstag fire, um, which created, which gave Trump um, far more power in terms of using police against his enemies. Um, but it also created an atmosphere of crisis Right, that this was, as Hitler framed it, a, a, a communist uprising right now, and therefore we have to be vigilant and we need to use force. And so, an election in those circumstances where Hitler has the, you know, the, the prestige of being chancellor, he has the police, he has now an environment in which people think there's a communist uprising just beginning. Um, in that last week or so, I mean, you had this kind of violence. Um, and the communists were, were actually banned um, from running. What's, I mean, what's interesting about that on the one hand is that amazingly, despite all of that, the, the Nazis only got 43% of the vote um, in an election in which they had all of those advantages. Um, so that's, that's something, of course, Hitler had enough power and enough influence to be able to still pass an act that made him a dictator. But this is kind of what I see now in terms of, you know, on the eve of the election, making use of basically what they have. They, they know they're not gonna win the popular vote. I think they know they're very much in trouble um, in any number of states. Um, and so all they have left is the efforts to, you know, dis disallow votes, but also to scare people, right? Scare people either from voting um, or, you know, send a message as to what's gonna happen if Trump wins. Yeah. Or if Trump loses, I mean, in a sense, you're going to have you would have violence either way, and that's the frightening thing because, regardless of what happens tomorrow, it doesn't it doesn't end. These people are obviously not the kind of people that are just going to pack it in and go home. They are either going to take out their frustration and, of course, believe that the, that the election was rigged and, and speak of all kinds of conspiracies that made that possible and go after anyone that they believe and that mm -hmm. Trump already indicated, right? Is behind it, you know these these efforts to kidnap governors and so forth. That um, they know who to go after already. Um, and if he wins, it's 
I, I think it would be similar to what happened in Germany in that they would feel empowered to go after them, right? Now that they have, once again, the power of the state behind them, and they know for the next four years at least, nothing's going to happen to them. And you may even see, who knows, I mean, deputy, you know, having some of these, you know, militias or really terrorist groups um, being deputized. I mean, I can't, uh, I wouldn't rule that out. Um, and you really see also something similar is, is the difference in response. These, these efforts to just, uh, just yesterday to shut down highways, bridges and so forth, again, with these caravans of, of Trump supporters. Um, and I posted something on Twitter because I was like, back. I remember <clears throat> being frustrated at Black Lives Matter protesters that were blocking streets, right? Highways and so forth, marching, right? Not with cars, but they were marching and how people were so frustrated right. you know, by this. And this is not how you, you protest injustice, right? And so forth. Um, and that people were in fact arrested right. in these efforts. And, you know, nothing happened to any of these people who, who, who did this, right? In trucks and SUVs and so forth. Um, and to me, the, the, the contrast there was just, just so stark. It was undeniable. Um, that they know what what they can do. Colleen, what do you what do you make of this? Um, particularly, you know what what Rich is talking about, and this concern that people have talked about with the blue shift um, effect, which is that you know in some states the the Democrat full Democratic vote will not be available on the first night, and that Trump will sort of employ a strategy of claiming victory inviting then mayhem over a day or two and then using whatever kinds of police powers to stoke that mayhem exactly what rich has been talking about which was clearly used over the summer in portland in philadelphia and other cities i'm not sure it worked out for them in terms of boosting poll numbers but i don't know i mean what how is the media approaching this how are you approaching this Yeah, I mean, I think one interesting place to look is at tech platforms, because, of course, we've been looking at those since 2016, looking at any role that they have or have not held in spreading misinformation, misinformation or disinformation. Um, and, you know, I, I know there's been some different discussions on Twitter today about how they're planning on putting some sort of pop up over one candidate from, you know, if, if a candidate says, yes, I won, or this is fake, you know, how are they going to approach that? Because clearly that's something they have struggled with. And I think, you know, one thing that's been so interesting, and I know we spoke about this when I was on last time, is how similar in a lot of ways the Trump campaign has been this time around, how many of the similar tactics he's employed, how, you know, it's these campaign rallies, a lot of them, you if you looked at a photo, you wouldn't know if it was 2016 or 2020. Lately, there's been more people wearing masks, which is great to see, but I mean, it's still packed stadiums, people shoulder to shoulder, and him standing at that podium. So, I think, you know, when he's talking about law and order, when he's talking about all these things, this is the same rhetoric largely that he feels clearly worked for him in 2016. I remember at the RNC, him talking about law and order, him making that appeal to, you know, suburban women. And he's clearly going for that again. I mean, I, I saw an advertisement the other day from Turning Point USA, which is aimed at younger conservative voters, but 
the entire ad was um, a white, you know, younger white woman walking into a gym alone and her thought process of, well, I really need to keep my family safe. So maybe I don't like Trump's style, but clearly I need to vote for the person who's going to keep the suburbs safe. And I can't have this sort of violence on my streets. And the tagline of the ad was, um, you know, to vote for Trump, it can be our little secret. So it's, it's just this very <laughs> clear. I didn't approach. see that one. Oh wow! Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, it's it's just really interesting, and you know, as that's the shy Trump voter we right, and he's been speaking directly to when you watch his rallies. I mean, I I had him in Pennsylvania on earlier today, and he said, you know, suburban women, I love you. I, I'm I'm helping your neighborhoods. Look at how bad things have been. But, you know, as, as we're saying, he's he is in power right now. He is the person who technically has the control right now. So there's this really strange cognitive dissonance of him pretty much running the campaign he ran in 2016 to get elected again. But then at the same time, as Richard was saying, I mean, he has these tools behind him that he clearly didn't have last time. And I think that's what's concerning when we look at what happens next, because we were having some of these conversations in 2016 of if Trump doesn't win, is he actually going to concede? He said, you know, in 2016, he did the same hedging of, well, I voter fraud. I don't know. Do you accept what happens the night of? But obviously it carries a different weight now that he has that power behind him. So I, I do think it's significantly more concerning this time around to hear that language, but also not at all surprising to a large degree to hear him making these sort of threats that clearly, you know, again, he feels like it worked before. Why wouldn't he do it again? The conventional wisdom that I'm hearing is that if Florida or North Carolina or Georgia is clearly pulling away for Biden, then all of these concerns we have for Trump will be negated. Party leadership will tell him, hey, look, you know, it's it's over and he'll back down um, and not try to do this kind of you know, everything you were just talking about, the tactics of the many different tactics he will use to deny the vote. Do you buy that conventional wisdom, Colleen? And then I'm going to Darian and bring you in on this, too. You know, I think. It, it's tough to say because clearly he has not been one to wait for the party's approval to do anything. I mean, you if go. you look at the majority of the people who are backing him, you can find horrible things they said about him, people within his own staff, his press secretary. I mean, senators like Lindsey Graham, who just had, you know, the worst things to say about him, who came out very early on, were trying to throw their weight behind anyone who they thought would beat him and now have just full-throatedly embraced what he's doing. So it has not necessarily been, you know, so goes the party, then goes Trump. It's really been the other way around these past four years. That said, I I do think there's a degree where maybe it's it gets to a point that it it just isn't feasible for him to to mount certain tactics. I mean, I think it has to be considered that once he leaves the presidency, he is aware that he is in for a lot of lawsuits and a lot of other unsavory years ahead of him. So I don't know what sort of mindset that would put him in and, and what sort of options, you know, he's been exploring. I think something we do know is his administration has had a tactic of sort of leaking a 
worst case scenario plan when it comes to everything from immigration to, you know, other other ideas he's had. And then when they do release their real plan and it's slightly scaled back from that, maybe some of the shock is gone. And that's something they've deployed regularly. So when we hear something like, oh, maybe he's going to announce victory early, it's hard to say if that's actually what they're thinking or if that's just sort of, you know, priming people to expect something. And then what he does maybe won't seem as surprising or shocking when he does it. Darian, let me bring you in. I wanna read you a statistic. Um, this is an NBC Wall Street Journal poll that was out today. In battleground states, so North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, and so on, um, looks like 42%, so 58% of voters disapprove of Trump's handling of the coronavirus. Now, that means 42% actually somehow approve of his handling of the coronavirus, but be that as it may, is that statistic meaningful to you? Can Donald Trump lose this election because of mishandling a pandemic? I'm sure he could lose this election because of his mishandling of the pandemic. Um, I do wanna kind of touch on, uh, my concern is sort of like what, Rich, what Richard was getting at, um, of regardless of what happens, there will probably be some instances of violence and how do we prepare for that? And you brought up um, what happened in Graham, North Carolina and Alamance County earlier where a, a black pastor led an organized march to the polls event last Saturday, and that was disrupted. People were tear gassed, folks were arrested. Um, and I used to live in North Carolina, in Orange County next to us. So anyone, anyone who's in the triangle knows, like when you hear the name Alamance County, like such a, like I remember just after Trump got elected, there were numerous like Alamance County clan sort of like caravans and planned demonstrations, announcements of the clan running through other parts of neighboring counties, um, mostly in Chapel Hill and Durham, um, numerous white militia groups based in Alamance County showing up to our demonstrations of our local Confederate monument, mm. Silent Sam, which was thankfully um, brought down via direct action of local organizers of color, uh, mostly trans people. Um, and so, so yeah, I think even regardless of how people feel about COVID, it's very clear that the, uh, that people, that, you know, in some spaces, people don't even know how invested they are in a white power structure or systemic racism or whatever. In other places, it is very, very clear, and people will make it known if if we're in an instance like you alluded to before of like maybe the state would go to Biden. I don't I don't think that will you know settle the energy that's there. Um, and again, just to kind of pull, I know among esteemed historians like Alamance County uh, had just a real intense history involving Wyatt Outlaw who first African-American town commissioner elected to the town of, of Graham, North Carolina. He was quickly lynched after his election by the Ku Klux Klan. A white state senator was also murdered by the Klan, and it prompted the governor to declare martial law, and then a like local war, as he declared, broke out. And um, 
and numerous people were hurt and killed. And so, and that history is there, like in the ground and people are still thinking about that. And it's still sort of guiding people's interactions with electoral politics and with the other members in their community. And that's going to take so much work <laughs> to deal with. Um, even so, and it causes me to be very, very concerned, even if Biden wins North Carolina or other places, like I'm from Florida, other sort of battleground states by a landslide. Um, so that's, that's what's on my mind. I'm just going to sit with that for a second. I, um, Rich, let me get your reaction to that because I, I mean, what what you're all saying to me, or what I'm hearing, is that um, first of all, the local really matters, and that what we may see tomorrow and in the coming days may be a set of realities that don't somehow line up with, um, uh, you know, an some a, a media figure in front of a big board saying, you know, Steve Kornacki saying, Hey, here's the big, I love what Steve does. And he shows the big board and he goes County by County, but the kinds of stories he doesn't tell are the ones that Darian was just saying. So that whatever ends up happening in Michigan or Wisconsin or North Carolina, there's going to be local violence and there's going to be undercurrents um, of unrest, which may not even break out into open violence, but will still be chilling to the exercise of democracy tomorrow and in the days to come. I, I, I guess I want to, it's not even a well-formed question. It's just something that's on my mind. What do you think, Rich? Uh, uh, that, that actually is something I was um, thinking about when, when Darren was, was talking. Um, and it's different from, from 2016, is that you know it's over the past four years you've had this um, development of and really I think by this point clearly it's, it's fully formed um, a segment this not insignificant segment of the population that exists in an alternate reality you know I mean for four you know before he ran or when he was running you know he lied people knew that but once he was in and the lies never stopped and they kept going and building and you know nothing no element of reality could change people's minds um then it became entrenched you know you, you could sit at one of these rallies and, and listen to all of these absurd things that he's saying and um all of the um claims that he makes on twitter and so forth that are clearly wrong um and that's really i think the, the biggest challenge uh for restoring some kind of healthy democracy. I mean, fundamentally for any healthy democracy, and this happened in, in Weimar as well in Germany, um, when the two sides or, or the various sides um, can't talk to each other because they don't agree on the same set of facts, right? The, the reality that they're talking about is, is just fundamentally different. And so there is no point in talking at that point because you can't change anyone's mind um, if they don't take anything you say as legitimate. Um, and that's when, of course, violence becomes uh, you know, a, a way of settling it. Um, and so 
when whatever happens, if, if he loses, um, these people will, will not accept it clearly. They've been primed for so long about all of the uh, ways in which he's, he's talked about, the way the election is going to be rigged and so forth, um, that I, I can't imagine only a certain sliver of maybe the outer rim of his, of his base might accept it. Um, and what do you do going forward when you have, you know, 30 to 35 percent or more of the population that is going to continue in this alternate reality and sees the current administration, if Trump loses, as completely illegitimate, which is something that they've been doing with democratic regimes for, for years. But now, again, it has the even more force because of the weight of the president of the United States sanctioning all of this and a Republican Party that is doesn't exist anymore outside of him. There is no leadership that can stop him. Uh, what he does at this point is up to him, I think, it, um, by now. So that's really the, that's really the frightening part, and that's that's where the violence comes in because there's no way of sort of you know rationally settling these kinds of issues that are that are just fundamental. I mean, I, that's useful all of this because it it helps me understand how you can have. Trump giving a stump speech, a sort of a closing argument in which he simultaneously seems to be criticizing the FBI director, the governor of Michigan, and Tony Fauci. And you wouldn't think that they would all line up. But if your goal is to sort of fundamentally disrupt a connection to the idea that data exists or that there is a reality that can be verified outside of what Trump says, that seems to be the crucial step. I, I, Rich, I think that's a, that's an insight that you've shared with me before on, on COVID calls. Yeah, I think, I mean, it, it, it gets to the point where it doesn't even matter so much that people really believe every aspect of, of what he says. Um, it's believing in itself becomes a part of the identity. You have to, right, to be a follower. You accept that reality, right? It's not so much, it doesn't matter the particular things that he's saying, um, being a follower of Trump means what he says goes. And even if it contradicts itself, yeah. it doesn't matter, right? Because otherwise, well, number one, you acknowledge that you've been duped for four years and many people don't want to believe that. And so they'll stick with their, uh, but it becomes it's very tribal in that sense. It's, you know, the lies, again, become part of that acceptance. Once you go into that, it doesn't matter what he says anymore. You've, you've abandoned you know, the real world and that's all you have left. Colleen, let me bring you back in on that. Um, I have been, uh, maybe as a way to cope with the reality of the world right now, I've been watching old reruns of the West Wing. And one of the things that happens in the West Wing is that they're, they're always, they have issues. You know, like, like the whole episode will be about healthcare or about gun control or whatever it is. And it's reflecting a 1990s sort of American polit political sensibility that was actually focused on like connection between ideology and policy. I think I still rather naively believed when the pandemic broke open earlier in the year that that would make healthcare the number one issue in this in this campaign and that that would be sort of have the momentum to carry through to election day and I and I read those statistics earlier most Americans don't trust Trump on the pandemic but what I'm hearing in my conversation with the three of you is you don't necessarily think that's the deciding factor yeah, I think one thing that's been interesting to watch over the past, I'm 
I don't remember exactly how long, how far back you can look, but when you look at the polls over the past, you know, maybe five months or so, they've been very stable, really. The number of people supporting Trump have continued to support Trump. The people supporting Biden have supported Biden. It's a very different landscape than if you look back at 2016 and some of the different, you know, the Comey memo and the Trump tapes, there were the ups and the downs and people were clearly sort of still making their minds up. And I think, as everyone's been saying, this is an election where you have a percentage of people who it's I, it's hard to think of what would change their mind. Um, we just sort of have hit a point where they are going to believe what they believe. And it's, it's very hard to think about what issue could come up, you know, unless maybe people are personally impacted. And even then, how much personal responsibility do you feel comfortable taking? I mean, it's it's really difficult to say. And I think another sort of level to this as a journalist is, you know, the media has clearly been one of the groups that have been gone after since 2015, since he started. And I think when you hear something like North Carolina and you hear Darian talking about the history of the place and how that clearly weighs into an event like that. You know, we, we've lost so much local media in the first place. And then you have people who don't trust the media. So you lose a layer of that history. You're losing people who could really add some needed context in a lot of places. And that's something that was already happening by 2016, but has certainly increased over you know the past four years and then in hyperspeed over the last eight months that we've lost so many outlets so many great journalists who would be able to convey these stories in a way that people could look at that and maybe really understand what was happening instead of being able to look at it and just seeing a quick blurb in the national news and then filtering that through their perspective of i believe this person or this person so if the new york times wrote about it it doesn't mean anything to me i mean we know local news had a yeah. has still where it exists a higher level of trust in most cases than national news so i think it's a really unfortunate convergence of events in a lot of ways where you know as we've lost a lot of local media we've seen an increase in use in social media and that only sort of adds to maybe more of that tribalism or allows people to reinforce what it is they want to hear what a great point and and I really like the way you frame that because it means, I mean, the local media will be the ones who do know those deeper histories. They know the sheriff's names. They they know the memorials and the ones that aren't there. Um, and so they give, but they're also sort of maybe counterintuitively more trusted as well. I mean, if I had a big sack of money and was going to invest in democracy in America, I'd be investing in small town newspapers, I think. Um, it seems like something we absolutely need maybe after this um, election the, this conversation has has t turned towards um realism and i won't say dystopianism but real concern um and uh, and i think that we're not powerless to meet those concerns after this election is over i want to um I want to close up. We have to wrap up, actually, um, just by asking people uh, where you, what you going to do on election night. <laughs> um, so maybe this is a slightly lighter uh, way to finish up, and I'll I'll just start. I bought a projector earlier this year, um, 
because I don't know when what you do in a pandemic, I guess if you have a job still and privilege to buy a thing, I bought a projector. So I watched the debates projected on my wall, like massive size, which I'm still kind of recovering from that. But I plan to do that uh, tomorrow night and watch those states come in with my with my family. And uh, I think I'm looking forward to that. Although I guess kind of like each of you said, I mean, it depends on what happens in Florida. It, it might turn into a pretty ghastly night pretty early, but I'm hoping not. And that's what I'm, I've got the first hour planned, I guess. We'll see what happens after that. Darian, what are you planning? I have, I don't know, a very formal and an informal answer. Um, I will be giving some of my money to my local bail fund, uh, which out here in Massachusetts, we have the Mass Bail Fund. They're really great. I anticipate protests, may or may not be part of those. I think people should be, um, should not be in, in cages in jail. Um, I'm also grateful that I live in a state and a community that has decriminalized cannabis and that might, might, that might be part of my uh, way of coping with election day um, because it's just, I can't watch the news on election day. That's not, I did not do that on 2016. I'm normally a media and news junkie, especially locally, local news. Not tomorrow but not on election days. So I will be attending to my group chats and uh, and giving money to, to freedom. Rich, fighters. what about you? I sort of uh, bounce back and forth between following the coverage and rolling up in a ball in my bed in the fetal position for the evening just because of the nerves. Um, I, I, I was home, I, I watched it last time. Uh, I didn't want to go to anyone's house to watch it just in case what happened happened. Um, and so I think I will probably be doing the same kind of thing and you know, maybe watching with, with one eye you know, closed or something like that. But I'll probably end up following it. I'm I, I, too much into it to, to resist. You sound like my grandfather when he used to watch University of Texas football games. He, he couldn't actually watch the game. He he would be outside raking leaves. Even mm -hmm. when there are no leaves, he'd just be out in the front yard with a rake because he couldn't act. The game would be on, but he couldn't actually watch it. He sort of occasionally he'd peer in from the back. Sounds like that's what you're going to be doing. Yeah, that's superstition. Yes. All right. I'll I'll update you and just tag you on Twitter so you can just follow on follow on Thank Twitter. You. Um, I think Trump's going to win Louisiana, Rich. I hate to break it to you. Yeah, that well, that you know takes a lot of pressure off locally. So you know, but uh, they're you know to the to the uh, to the west of us. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, Colleen, what is your plan for election night? I noticed I didn't ask you who you thought was going to win because I don't <laughs> think anybody wants to be asked that question. But what's your plan? So I spent 2016 covering the Clinton election night party in the Javits Center. So I figure oh anything I do this year will be a bit less hectic than that. Um, but added to that, this will actually be the first election I won't be physically out somewhere covering in my career pretty much. So an election night first for me is that 
I will be working, but I will actually get to make my own dinner, which I've never done. I've always had like some sort of horrible vending machine, pizza, <laughs> like whatever scraps I can find, um, yeah. usually at like three in the morning meal. So I am just primarily focusing on the fact that I get to cook for myself and I will be working, but at least I have that. <laughs> All right, I'm hearing a lot of focus on nourishment, on community, uh, some guarded optimism. Um, thanks everybody for spending this hour talking about what we're looking for tomorrow. And just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And tomorrow will be an election day sort of preview um, episode. So please join me for that. And I wanna thank Darian Alexander-Williams, Richard Frankel and Colleen Haggerty um, for coming back on COVID calls and for spending this time today. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Stay healthy, everybody, and uh, keep in touch. Good luck. Everybody, stay healthy. See you tomorrow at 5 o'clock.